0: want to share something exciting with you. Kathy Nelson, if you would join me up here for just a minute. You all might remember last year, Kathy's husband Charlie was baptized into Christ, and He was joining us here on Sundays, but Charlie was hard of hearing. And, uh, you know, unlike most of you, he couldn't hear what I was saying. I mean, i got a big mouth, but he he couldn't hear what I was saying. And so when Charlie died, uh, Kathy set up a memorial fund here at the church, and that money went to buying some hearing assist devices. And these are just like wireless microphones that work in reverse. You can just wear this on your belt... Put the headphones in your ears, and you can hear what I'm saying. And we got four sets of these in memory of Charlie. Uh, So anybody here that's hard of hearing, or maybe you bring a friend or family member with you that's hard of hearing, just ask one of our sound guys, Tim or Josh. We can set you up with one of these so you can hear the service and not miss out on anything. And and Kathy, I just wanted to thank you uh, and, and Charlie's memory for this gift to the church. And, and, and the bonus with this is, if you don't like what I'm saying, <laughs> you just shut it off. You know, it's like the old husband has been married 50 years with the hearing aids, you know. What? I want to go ahead and dismiss the elementary age kids to go that direction for junior worship. And if they're good parents, you can pick them up after the service. If they're not good, who knows? One other bit of news I wanted to tell you. You saw the signs about the toilets being out of order. That's not a fun thing to have happen at church on a Sunday morning. Uh, The plumber is here, and we've been told that the toilets upstairs here in this corner are working. There's also one back here in this corner that's working fine. So know that those are available to you if you do need to use those. I ran across a headline that captured my attention. It said, Love is a flimsy foundation for marriage. New study said. I piqued my curiosity. I started reading. And it goes on to make this startling claim that those who marry for love are 150% more likely to get divorced. Now there's a way to begin a marriage series right there. But as I continued in the article and I dug deeper, uh, and I found out that those who did the study, it was the National Marriage Project, at the University of Virginia, they were working with a completely different definition of love than what I was using as a Christian. The definition of love that they were using was the, was the romantic, make your heart all aflutter, melt in your socks, we are soulmates, meant for life, definition of love. And this wrong definition of love is just a part of the problem. The truth is that our culture is trying to build marriages on several different flimsy foundations. And so we're beginning a new series this week called Love for a Lifetime. And in this series, we are going to be looking at God's original design for marriage. And and I think this will be helpful for those that have been married just a few years, those that have been married decades. Those of you who aren't married yet, those that have been divorced and been through some difficult marriages, I think that there'll be something in here for everybody. But we're going to be looking at God's original design for marriage because when all else fails, read the manual. And that's what we're going to do. But the problem we have is there are so many myths about marriage, so many lies about relationships... And we are surrounded with them in our culture. We are are bombarded with them. And what we've been doing in the church as Christian couples, we've been hearing these myths so much that we've been bringing them into our own homes and our own marriages to the point where the state of marriage in the church is almost indistinguishable from the state of marriage in the world as a whole. Something's not right with that picture. And so what we want to do this morning is just, we want to clear the ground of all of this clutter so that we've got a, a, a clear spot so that we can build on the solid foundation of God's Word. And what I want to do this morning is just talk about some of these widely held marriage myths. This isn't going to be one of those sermons where we really dig deep into Scripture. We're going to get into the book chapter and verse stuff later But I think it's important for us to be able to identify these lies. Because Satan, who is the father of lies, will use these untruths to wreak havoc in your heart and in your home. And if we try to build marriages based on these lies, we will not have a love that lasts a lifetime. All right. Are you guys ready? I I might say some things that surprise you, but but hear me out here, okay? Myth number one, the romance myth. This is the myth that tells us that the foundation for a lifelong love is how another person makes you feel. And, And the idea here is that we just need to find the right person who can make us feel the right way for the rest of our lives and if you can find that person and they make you feel that way and you make them feel that way well then you're gonna have a good marriage problem is it's not true it doesn't work that way there isn't a single human being on this planet who is capable of making your palms sweat and your heart palpitate for the rest of your life I'm doing good if I can make my wife feel that way once a week No matter how intense, no matter how passionate, the fire of romance is never permanent. It's a biological reality of of creation. The emotions and and, and its chemical reactions that come and go, and they change with time. And if the glue that holds you together is how that other person makes you feel, it's not going to last. That's not super glue. It's a glue stick. It looks kind of cool and it's fun to play with, but it doesn't last very long. The problem is movie after movie, romance novel after novel, every other song on the radio sells us the lie that romance is the glue that holds two people together. And as a result, Hollywood and Harlequin have unleashed untold relationship hell on countless couples. Now, why would we even listen to these people about marriage and love and relationships in the first place? I mean, what makes us think that these writers and directors and actors know anything about love at all? Have you ever looked at their relationships? You ever read People magazine? Let me just give you some of the more common names here. These are the marriages and major relationships they have been through during their careers. Meg Ryan, the romance starlet of the 90s. You know how many she's had? Four. And she does better than most. Julia Roberts, seven. Here you go. Drew Barrymore, anybody want to guess how many major relationships she's had? 14 Tom Cruise 8 Leonardo DiCaprio 14 Danielle Still 5 They don't know anything Sadly two thirds of the population believes that an intense passionate romantic connection is the foundation of marriage Don't get me wrong I'm not against romance Romance is great sexual attraction is wonderful and some of us need to do a much better job of injecting some romance into our marriages God isn't against romance I mean just read the song of Solomon that will give you a clue of what God thinks about all of this stuff and I think Christian marriages can be some of the most romantic and don't forget that sex was God's idea he made it up yay God but it is not the foundation of a love that lasts a lifetime. Romance might be the icing on the cake, but it isn't the flour and eggs that make up the batter. A related myth is the soulmate myth. This is the idea that to find your happily ever after, you have to find the one. Out there in the vast sea of humanity, there is one person meant for you, and you are meant for them. And to find marital bliss, you too must find each other. And the flip side of the soulmate myth is that if your marriage is struggling and you have some conflict and difficulties, well, you must not have found the one. And we as Christians have a real problem with this one. Because what we have done in the church is this. We have taken this myth and we've Christianized and spiritualized it. Saying that there is one man or one woman out there that God created just for you. That God meant for you. Christian Mingle promises to help you find your soulmate. And you know how many times a Christian single hears something like this? Well, God has someone just for you. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but so many of us believe it. As many as 90% of Christian young people believe this myth. Not only that, but we have this expectation that God is going to show us who this person is. That if we are spiritually mature enough that if we seek the Lord diligently in prayer and we are sensitive to his leading, he is going to guide us to the one. And what I want you to know this morning is that the soulmate myth is unreasonable, impractical, and it is unbiblical. Do you realize how self-oriented it is to believe that of the billions of people on this planet that God created one of them just for you and that you can only be happy if you find that one. And think about it. If God was going to do this, and he was going to guide you to your divine soulmate, a person that he custom-made just to make you happy, then why does God go to all the trouble he does in Scripture to tell us what kind of person to marry? To not be unequally yoked of what kind of husbands we are to be and and how we should love our wives and what kind of wives we should be and how we should love our husbands and and, and how we should use wisdom in making decisions. Why would any of that be necessary if God was going to just show us the one person who just by existing, who, who just by being with us, was going to make us happy? I could fill a whole sermon with stories about couples who got married who were 100% convinced that they had found God's soulmate for them. They were absolutely clear this is who God wanted them to marry, and five years later, they're divorced. If you think that finding the perfect man or the perfect woman will make you happy and feel the emptiness in your life, you're in for a lifetime of disappointment. What do you do when you find the one? But your one doesn't think you're the one. And they dump you. Does that mean then you're destined to a lifetime of unhappiness? Because you missed your one? And think of of, of the consequences of this. This leads to a domino effect that never ends. If I find my one, but my one doesn't marry me, my one marries somebody else, then not only am I destined to a lifetime of unhappiness, the person I end up marrying is destined to a lifetime of unhappiness. The person that she marries is destined to a lifetime of unhappiness, and obviously they married the wrong one, and you have this endless string, and within a few generations, everybody's married the wrong person, and nobody's happy. It just doesn't make sense. Since we need to realize how ridiculous it is to expect another human being to give us what no human being is capable of giving us. That is a huge responsibility to place on someone else's shoulders, that their purpose in life is to make you happy? Really? How wrong it is of us to expect from that person what only God can give us. And the soulmate myth also fools us into thinking that marriage should be easy with that person. Because after all, if I have married my soulmate and God made me to make them happy and made them to make me happy, then everything should just work, shouldn't it? And when we inevitably run into the difficulties and and trials and challenges of a marriage, then disillusionment sets in and we begin to think, what if they're not the one? What if I found the wrong one? I don't have time to go into the full deal about God's will and understanding God's will for our lives. That's a whole sermon series right there. It is true that there are a couple of times in Scripture that God plays matchmaker, and He tells one person, I want you to marry that person. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that He's going to do that for everyone and that that's going to make us happy. Now, by all means, I'll give this caveat here. If God wants to play matchmaker in your life and he tells you specifically who you should marry, please obey God, all right? But still, even then, don't expect that to make you happy. Ask Hosea how that worked out for him. Think about it. Chew on that one for a while. Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. Go marry a hooker. That's the Dan Raymond paraphrase, but that's the bottom line. Go marry a prostitute. It was literally a match made in heaven. And just ask Hosea just how that worked out for him. Instead of trying to find God's soulmate and trying to read the signs and discern God's will and who does God want me to marry... Here's two things you need to do. Number one, instead of focusing on finding the right person, focus on finding the right kind of person. Do do you see the difference there? The right kind of person. Have an understanding in your mind what kind of character qualities, attributes, background, values, and beliefs that would, would make for a healthy marriage and then look for a person that has those qualities. Find that in them. Focus on finding the right kind of person. Secondly, focus on finding the right, or focus on being the right kind of person. You know, I, I have been surprised how many times people will, will, will agonize over, I need to find a godly husband. I need to find a godly wife. How come God doesn't lead a godly man or a godly woman to me? But the whole time, their life is a complete mess. And, and I'm thinking, what would a godly man or woman want to have to do with you? And I remember talking to to one gal. She was was really heartbroken over this. And and I pray and pray, why doesn't God answer my prayers and and lead a godly husband and and a godly man? And, And I finally asked her, I said, what is it about your life that a godly man would be attracted to? Focus on finding the right kind of person. Focus on being the right kind of person. And I, and I think if you do those two things, that nearly any Christian man and any Christian woman, if they're committed to living out biblical principles in their relationship, can have a great, fulfilling, intimate, passionate marriage. There are many women that I could have married and been within God's will for my life. There are many men that Teresa could have married and had a happy, fulfilling, godly marriage. Knowing me, she'd probably have been a lot happier with them than me. But the moment we stood before God and each other and said, I do, that's when she became the one for me, and I became the one for her. If you're married, the one for you is the one you said, I do, to. What makes them the one for you is not some mystical thing out there in the universe. It is your commitment and your vow and your dedication and your loyalty and your hard work. Third myth, this one's a real quick one, but it's the 50-50 myth. And I've heard this one from almost every couple that's come through my office. They want me to do their wedding. I require that we do premarital counseling. And here's what they say. They say, Pastor, we're going to have a 50-50 marriage. We're going to split everything evenly right down the middle. Work, parenting, chores, everything 50-50, give and take relationship. And I look them in the eye and I tell them, if you keep that attitude, you're doomed to failure. You see, the 50-50 myth sounds great in theory. However, in practice, it never works because each spouse has a different definition of what their 50% is. You see, men and women are created differently. God wired our brains differently. We think about things differently. We respond emotionally differently. And so what happens is this. The marriage starts off great. You go through the honeymoon phase. Everybody's doing their best, trying their hardest. It's great. But a couple years into this deal, you know, somebody gets sick or you you have some hard times, and so somebody has to start working extra hours or a second job. And so they begin to fall down on their end of the deal. And so the other spouse is there thinking, hey, this is supposed to be a 50-50 deal, and right now it's 60-40, and I'm doing the bulk of the work. This isn't right. Well, I'll show them. I'll pull back. I'll just do 40%. Well, this spouse over here, they can sense that something's changed. And they're like, you know what? They know I'm going through some tough stuff. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying all all I can do, and and, and that's how they're going to treat me? Well, I'll show them. And so what happens is 50-50 becomes 40-40, 30-30, 20-20, 10-10, divorce court. Every time. 50-50 never works. Ideally, what it takes is... Do you want to guess here? 100, 100. 100 percent from him and 100 percent from her. This is the biblical idea behind agape love. This is the commitment of an unconditional love. Now, in reality, it's usually not 100, 100. Because here's how it usually works in reality. There are times in our marriage where Teresa has carried 90 percent of the load, and I'm only carrying 30 percent. But there's been other times where I'm I'm carrying 90% and she's only carrying 30%. But here's the neat thing, that even in those times when she's doing 90 and I'm only doing 30, we still have 120% to go on. And it keeps us going. A fourth flimsy foundation for a lifelong love is the idea of compatibility. And this has really grown in popularity in recent years because of online dating and websites that have been pushing this idea that a lifelong love is based on chemistry. And they even claim to be able to scientifically gauge the dimensions of compatibility, whatever that means. I read about one couple who went on this website and they took the test. And it said they were 99% compatible with each other. You can't do much better than that. And so they started dating, and and things went really well, and enthusiastically they got married because they found somebody they were perfectly compatible with. And three years later, they were divorced. So they go back to the website again, and guess what happens? It matches them back up, and it still says they're 99% compatible. I guess that 1% makes a lot of difference. There are a number of reasons why compatibility does not guarantee success. For one thing, people change, interests change, personalities develop, and how you score on a test at 25 could be very different at 40. Another factor is that opposites attract, and for good reason. Weaknesses need strengths. And I think uh, the best illustration I've ever seen of this comes from Rocky. If you've seen the movie Rocky, he's talking to Adrian and he's like, I got gaps, you got gaps. Together, we got no gaps. (laughs) Deep, biblical theology (laughs) from Sylvester Stallone. Compatibility doesn't necessarily create closeness. It can also create competition, comparison, and boredom. I remember when I was in Bible college, I had a best friend. We enjoyed so many of the same things together. We did everything together. We thought, hey, you know, next year we need a room together. That would be fantastic. So we roomed together the next year. Halfway through the first semester, we were ready to kill each other. I mean, it was hurting our friendship. So we had to get different rooms. And we had rooms next to each other, and everything went back to being hunky-dory. We couldn't live with each other best roommate i ever had was the kid from the inner city and i had nothing in common with him other than our love for jesus christ sure there are some things you need to have in common such as your faith scripture tells us to not be unequally yoked we should only marry someone who shares our faith and by extension we should only date someone who shares our faith You need to discuss your views of money, of parenting, where you're willing to live, where you would never move, how much time you want to spend with your parents, all that sort of thing. You need to have conversations and find common ground on a whole host of differences. And this is where compatibility tests can be useful. They can point out to you where that friction might come up. They can point out to you the things that you should discuss. But they can never guide you to a marriage that won't have those things. There's another myth that's believed by the vast majority of young adults today, including many Christians, but it's an absolute lie from the pit of hell. And it's the cohabitation myth. This is the idea that living together before marriage is a good way to ensure a successful marriage or at least prevent a bad one. And today, as many as 70% of couples live together before tying the knot. And I know I risk stepping on some toes with this one, but please hear me out. This isn't just a bad idea because God says so. And and for a Christian, the fact that God says so should be sufficient. That should be the deciding factor right there. But God doesn't say so to to ruin our good time or to keep something from us. He says so because in his infinite knowledge, he knows some very important things. Conventional wisdom says that shacking up is a good way to take the relationship for a test drive to see how they like it. I had one young lady who was moving in with her boyfriend, she was putting off marriage, and she's put it to me this way. Well, I would never buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first. And to her, the wisdom of it seemed obvious. But as I listened to her argument, it was all based on these other myths. She was saying things like, well, how do you know if they're the one? How do you know if you're compatible? How do you know if it'll work out? But none of those things are the foundation of a marriage. And the benefits seem obvious as well. We can share the bills, we can share the chores, I won't have to cook for just one and have all of these leftovers, and of course there is the easy access to sex. So why wouldn't you want to live together? Number one, reality is beginning to crash the party. And what they're finding is that couples who live together before they're married do not have more successful marriages. And the statistics on this Are startling. The divorce rate for marriages that begin as cohabitating relationships is 50% higher than those who don't live together first. If you live together first, your chance of divorce skyrockets. This doesn't even take into account that 60% of relationships, of living together relationships, never even make it to marriage. So cohabitating unions have an 80% failure rate that's huge it has the opposite effect on marriages that we think it does and there's very good reason for this by their very nature cohabitating unions are intrinsically selfish let me explain see living together is a pretend marriage that seeks the rewards and benefits of real marriage without the commitment and protection of a real marriage and so a couple decides they want to play house because well, they want the joys of, of, of assured sexual relations, they want intimate companionship, they want shared financial resources, they want the sharing of obligation and tasks. But they want that without the security of a vow, without the full assurance of exclusivity, and without the promise of complete devotion. They are in essence saying they want the rewards without the responsibility. Are you seeing the problem here? So by design, cohabitation is is a relationship where each partner intends to get out of it more than they put into it. Danny Murphy, Christian comedian, illustrates this in a very funny way. He wrote some cohabitation vows. Check this out. I, John, take you, Mary, to be my cohabitant to have sex with and to share the bills with. I'll be around while things are good, but I probably won't be if things get tough. If you should get a cold, I'll run to the drugstore for some medicine. But if you get sick to the point where where you can no longer meet my needs, then I'll have to move on. Forsaking most others, I will be more or less faithful to you for as long as it feels good to me. If we should break up, it doesn't mean this wasn't special for me. I commit to live with you for as long as this works out. Living together also fails because it steals the magic. When a couple lives together before marriage, they've already tasted the fruits and rewards of marriage, at least the low-hanging fruit. And so what's left to discover? It's like the kid who sneaks into the attic a month before Christmas and finds all of his Christmas presents. And every day he sneaks up to the attic and he's playing with the Christmas presents and he's having all sorts of fun until Christmas morning comes. Christmas morning, they're all out there, the gifts are wrapped, and they're under the tree, and his brothers and sisters are opening their stuff, and they're all excited, and they're playing. His cousins are opening presents, and they're playing. And he's over here moping in the corner, not having any fun at all. Because he has stolen the joy and the wonder of Christmas morning. Living together first robs the marriage of the initial wonder that what would otherwise help seal that relationship. So it begins the relationship with lower commitment expectations, rewards without responsibilities, and an intrinsic selfishness. Now, once these attitudes are ingrained in a relationship, do you think they just change and stop on wedding day? No, they don't. Counselors and therapists are, are, are finding that, that couples who live together often have ideas like, This is my money. Well, that's your bill. That's your responsibility. Or I can leave this anytime I want. Those attitudes just don't disappear because you stand before a preacher and say, I do. Of course, none of this takes into consideration the fact that living together also often brings children into the picture, and now we have a whole generation of kids growing up without both of their parents, and it is having catastrophic consequences in our society. The bursting prison populations, the problems in schools, the sliding test scores, the cycle of poverty that so many can't break, the the substance abuse that so many young people struggle with, all of these can be directly tied back to so many children growing up without both their mom and dad. Marriage is so much more than just a piece of paper. Marriage done right and built on the right foundation binds a man and a woman together at the deepest emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. It is an all-in devotion that sets that relationship apart from all others and then promises to protect it with every thing that it has living together only steals from a marriage the security and protection that it needs to survive and so you young people those of you who aren't married yet please listen to me on this save yourself from lots of heartache and grief one last flimsy foundation that's growing in popularity in our culture is abandoning marriage altogether. And this is what increasing numbers of young people are doing. Some studies say that as many as 4 in 10 say that marriage is obsolete. Now, why wouldn't they come to that conclusion? Here's why. They have seen their moms and dads in multiple failed marriages. They have seen their grandparents in multiple failed marriages. They have seen their aunts and uncles in multiple failed marriages. In fact, for many young people, they don't know anyone close to them who's had a good marriage. Why wouldn't you come to that conclusion? This is one of the valuable things about raising your children in the church because when you bring your kids to church each week, they get to see couples that have been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I was over at Jim and Joe Almond's house this week. How many years did you say you guys have been married? 63 years. That's longer than most of us have been alive. Now, moms and dads, I think it would be a good idea once in a while, you got your little kids with you, and you just point out Jim and Joe, our Chuck and Joyce, our Robert and Mary, We've got several of these couples here. She said, do you know how long they've been married? And of course, they'll guess what in their minds are really a big number. 23? <laughs> yeah? And it's just a chance to point out to them that, you know what? I want to love your mommy like that. I want to love your daddy like that. That when you're old enough that you've got your own kids, in fact, when you're old enough when you've got your own grandkids, I'm going to still be loving your mommy like that. I'm going to still be loving your daddy like that. And those kids get the benefit of knowing that, hey, there are real-life people who've been married 60 years, and it's been good. We need that. We need that. Those aren't all the marriage myths, but these are just some of the more popular myths in our culture that are wrecking homes today. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at God's foundation for marriage. Next Sunday, we have a guest speaker. Uh, Somebody from the Missouri Christian Prison Ministry is going to be here. Then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at God's foundation for marriage. But I want to wrap this up this morning and set up a couple of weeks from now by taking you to Genesis chapter 1. Just open your Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is real easy to find. In Genesis 1, we get an account of the days of creation. And as it goes through each of these days of creation, God just sometimes takes a pause from His work and looks at what He has done. It's kind of like when you're working on a major project and you hit a major milestone and you kind of just step back and you look at things and think, wow, it's really coming together. It's starting to take shape. Well, several times in Genesis 1... God does this. He does it twice on the third day in verses 10 and 12. He does it on the fourth day in verse 18. He does it on the fifth day in verse 21. And He does it on the sixth day after He's made all of the animals, but before He's made Adam and Eve. And God looks at what He's made and He says what? It was good. But something interesting happens. You get to day six. And he makes Adam and Eve. And and he places them in the garden. In verse 27 it says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God places Adam and Eve in the garden. And he blesses them. He calls them to be fruitful and to multiply. And after giving them this charge, in verse 31 it says this, And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There's a different word in there. Every day before, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But now creation, with man and woman in it, with husband and wife in it, with Adam and Eve in it, with marriage in it, God looks at that and He says, it was very good. And what I want you to know today and have this conviction deep in your heart is that, that not only was marriage a very good thing those many years ago in the garden, I believe from the bottom of my heart it can be a very good thing today. But we've got to do it the right way. We've got to build the right on the right foundation. We've got to avoid the myths and the lies that are in our culture because they're not going to build a love for a lifetime. We've got to follow the principles that God establishes. And I want you to know that you can have something very good in your home. And that's available to you. As we draw to a close here this morning, just like every other Sunday, if you are looking to make Jesus and receive Him as the Lord and Savior of your life, to be baptized into Jesus, you can make that decision. If you are looking for a church home, we would love to have you as a part of the Sunrise family. But let me say something out there right now to you husbands and wives that might be struggling with some of this stuff. Don't just ignore it. Don't just avoid it. Don't just think it's going to go away on its own it doesn't. I could tell you so many stories of couples in the church who don't get help, who don't seek to do anything until after it's too late, until after the nuclear bomb has already gone off. And I have sat with so many tearful husbands and tearful wives, and I've said. Why didn't you come to us a year ago? Why didn't you say something a couple years ago? We could have done something then. I don't know if you saw this on Facebook this week or not, but I, on Friday, had posted, you know, ten reasons for a sermon series on marriage. And there was a response I had on there. This was a friend from my, my last church. He's now in, in Texas. And he just said something about, along the lines of, Dan, I really wish we had come to you earlier Then maybe we could have saved our marriage. You do not know the regret and the heartache that was in those words. Don't let that be you. I'm willing to talk to you. We've got good people here. And I pointed out those that have been married a a, a long time. And there's, I mean, Teresa and I have been married 23 years. Pat and Amber, where are you guys at? Are, how many years? 33? If you're a young couple, or you're struggling in your relationship. There's a joke I missed out on. I'm going to have to pick that one up later. What are about? How long okay. Oh. <laughs> Pat, just a hint. She's right. <laughs> um... <laughs> Spend some time with these couples. Just ask them, hey, did you guys ever fight about this stuff? How did you get through this? You know what you're going to find out? You're not alone. You're not the only one who's been through this. I remember one couple I was doing some counseling with, a young couple, and it was just a huge weight off of their shoulders when they discovered that what they were going through was normal. They thought something was wrong with them. Something was broken. Something wasn't right. It's like No. Except my wife and I, we fought about that. and you still made it? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's one of the reasons why the Bible says that that those of us who are older need to spend some time with those of us who are younger. We you know, we might actually know some things. So take advantage of some of those those resources. and and if you do need some prayer, Feel free to pray. And as we sing this song, like every week, you can come to the cross for prayer. Somebody will pray with you. You can come to the prayer bench and just spend time between you and God and set these things before the throne of God. Let us stand together as we sing.